we dove into this a little bit last week and we kind of did a 30,000 foot flyover of what this book is, where it comes from, why it exists, what's going on. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to his co-worker, Titus, who's doing work on the island of Crete. It's a Greek island about a thousand, or about a hundred miles south of mainland Greece. And there's some very young, fledgling church plants in some of the cities on Crete. And Titus has been sent there to, or left there by Paul, I should say, to help establish those churches, to help them find solid footing so that they can be true churches, be true churches in the fact that they are fully formed churches and that they do the work that the church is called to do. And that's what Titus is all about. It's this letter written to Titus to help him know how to set this church up on solid footing to be a faithful church going forward and to carry out the work that lies before it. Which, of course, is very pertinent to us. We are a very new church. We just existed for just over a year, and in a lot of ways, we are still being established. We are still getting foundations in place. But our desire is the same desire that Paul had for the church at Crete, that this place would be a place where that is formed by the work of Jesus and proclaims that work faithfully for generations to come. And ultimately, that's what we hope happens here at Covenant Grace. So this is a very relevant and very timely letter for us, even though it's 2,000 years old, give or take 50 so, today we're going to be looking at the intro to Titus. We're going to start, we did last week, we did the big flyover, now we're going to start to get into the weeds. And I told you last week that this book, this letter is uh, very concentrated theology. Um, Paul doesn't waste words with what he does here in Titus. It's one of his shortest letters, and he gets right to the point with some things. But even though it's one of his shortest letters, it's one of his longest introductions, one of his longest greetings. And this is also, this greeting is also evidence for something else I mentioned last week, that even though this letter is addressed to Titus, we are meant to listen in. It was addressed to Titus, but the churches at Crete were supposed to hear it as well. And a lot of the things that Paul is going to say as he greets Titus are not things that are meant for Titus. They're things Titus would have already known, that he wouldn't need to say to Titus. But he says to Titus for the sake of the churches of Crete that are listening in, and for our sake, listening in all these years later. So what do we find in this greeting that we're going to read in just a second? Like I said, it's one of his longest greetings and one of his shortest letters, and he gets his money's worth out of it, guys. Uh, there, there was an alternate reality where I could have done many sermons on these four verses. Um, there's just so many huge, deep, rich theological truths about who God is and how he relates to us that he packs into this greeting. It's because he's really using this greeting to lay the groundwork so that we know how to read everything he's going to say afterwards, right? It's almost like a, a thesis statement, if you remember back when you were in classes learning how to write, right? You have this thesis statement at the beginning where you say what you're going to say. That's kind of the way Paul is using this greeting, so that we know as he branches off into different aspects of the life of the church, it all, we know what it all comes back to. We all know what it all ties into. He's basically with this greeting, he's saying, this is what I am doing this is what I'm doing. Don't forget this. So we're going to see three primary things that he does with this greeting. First thing that we're going to see is that he establishes his credibility and his authority as an apostle. He's going to tell us why we should listen to him, right? why we should pay attention when he's talking. And in doing that, he's going to also undermine some of the reasons that the Cretans would be tempted to not listen. 
because there's some reason, there's some things that would undermine his authority and the authority of Titus following on from this that Paul wants to kind of nip in the bud so that they don't become a hindrance to the churches receiving this as they should. Next, Paul's going to describe what he does as an apostle. What is his ministry? What exactly is he doing in his ministry in general? And really, this letter is just a piece of that, right? When we look at his ministry, this letter is basically kind of a carbon copy of that. He's doing that through pen and paper here in this letter. It spills into what he writes. So what does he do, not just as an apostle, but specifically, how does his apostleship, what he does in an apostle, his ministry, show up in Titus? And lastly, we're going to show why this ministry that he's going to talk about, why they can trust it, right? Why they can trust it, why they don't need to run off into other things, why they don't need to look for more, why they don't need to listen to those who would shake them or press them to look to other things. Gets all of that done in one sentence, right? And it all combines to do very, two very important things for us as a church, First, it's going to deepen our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. And then it's going to help us understand that this ministry that Paul describes is is vital because this is the ministry that the church now carries forward. As the apostles die, they hand this ministry off to the church. And so the ministry that Paul is describing is now been handed to us the church, to continue on and to carry on. We are doing the same things that he describes. So let's read, and then we'll unpack it and see how we see these things. Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we look at your word. We thank you for it, uh, but we know that we need your help to understand it rightly and to have it affect us as it should. Uh, But we also have your promise that your word does not return void. So we uh, plead that before you this morning. We pray that you would guard my words, that what people receive from me as I proclaim your word would be your word, that if there's any error or anything wrong in it, it would fall away and be forgotten, and that your word would remain. Lord, we pray for our hearts. We know that at times it can be hard and and unreceptive to what you have to say. I pray that you would soften them, give us ears to hear what you have to say, and that that we would change under your word rather than trying to shift it to suit us. Lord, we ask for your help and and we are thankful that we have it in your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so let's start with uh, how Paul kind of establishes his authority. We see this in the first and last verses of this introduction. Paul introduces himself in a particular way. He says he calls himself a servant or a slave to God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And towards the end, he he addresses Titus, and we see some more things about him. So 
those two titles, a slave to God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, both, they really capture two, two aspects of the same thing. And they ultimately show that Paul is in the service of God. That word for servant or slave, whatever your Bible says, it's, it's a word that describes somebody who is in essentially an indentured servitude to somebody, right? That, that they serve this person, they serve at their whim, right? One of the things that, as an officer in the Marine Corps, I served at the pleasure of the president, right? I, I, that was one of the, the aspects of serving in that role. In that way, that's what Paul has too. He is a minister of God, but he, he serves at God's behest, right? God called him into this, and God could take him away from it if he wants to. It, it's, not a, it's not a lifting up of Paul's position for the sake of his own position, right? He's not, this is not an ego trip by Paul when he says, oh, I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus. He, what he's trying to do is say that, no, I've been, I've been sent by God. I'm just a messenger, but I have been sent by God. I've been commissioned by God to come to you with this. He's not trying to throw his weight behind what he's saying. He's trying to make them realize, make sure they know that what he brings to them, he was commissioned. That word actually gets used towards the end of verse 3, that he was commissioned, essentially charged by God to bring this to the church. And he actually puts this in an unusual way. He says things like this in the greetings of lots of his letters, but he usually says a slave to Jesus Christ, not a slave to God. This is the only place he uses that phrase. And he's actually probably picking that up from the Old Testament. It was a very common phrase in the Old Testament used by folks who had offices, special callings in the Old Testament. It gets used of Moses, of David, of many of the prophets. If we realize, if we remember what we saw was going on with in Crete that Paul's writing into, some of the trouble for the church is coming from Jewish teachers, right? Jewish teachers who are coming in and distorting the gospel and causing problems for the church. So what Paul's doing by saying a servant of God, he's kind of tying himself in with all of these Old Testament servants of God that God called with a special purpose for him. He's tying himself to that. He's saying, I'm the same as them. So you guys should pay attention. Right? This is meant specifically for, for them to catch their attention because they would notice that and they would pick up on that. These are people who knew their Old Testaments well. Right? So he's, he's kind of trying, he has them in mind as he's, the way he's describing himself. And he talks about being an apostle of Jesus Christ. This kind of further describes what it means for him particularly to be a slave of God. We are all described as slaves of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That's something we all bear the title of as Christians. But apostle's a different thing. And so we are all called to serve Jesus Christ in some way, but Paul had this specific way he was called to serve as an apostle. And the word apostle just means really to be sent. He's a sent one. He was sent out by Jesus for the particular purpose of laying the foundations of the church. That's what the apostles were for. That's what he is sent out for. And he's going to describe more about what that means in a minute. But that's what calling himself an apostle does. It more deeply specifies his particular servitude to God, what he's been called to. So this, like I said, this is written to the churches of Crete who are listening in, and to us who are listening in. Titus didn't need to know this. Titus did ministry alongside Paul for years. He has no doubts or questions about Paul's apostleship. If he had, he would have left him long ago. Um, this is meant for, for us, to get us to sit up and to pay attention to what is being said, to make sure that we don't ignore that, that, that what is being said and written is weighty. 
And Paul's not just trying to do that for what he's saying. He's trying to set this church up long term in the way that he addresses Titus in verse 4. In verse 4, he calls Titus his true child of a common faith. That phrase there for true child means legitimate child. It's the term for a legitimate child. And this is important when we realize the backgrounds of the two men we're talking about. Paul is a Jewish Pharisee, circumcised, all the stuff according to the Old Testament law dialed into a T. Titus is not. Titus is Greek. He's an uncircumcised Greek on top of that. Right? So for some of the folks that Paul is talking to who are overhearing this letter, this is a big deal and this is a problem. Right? He mentions specifically the circumcision party as some of the folks who are raising trouble for the church. So what Paul is doing here in the way that he addresses Titus is he's trying to undercut those who would now, maybe, maybe they'll accept Paul, but they're going to demean and undermine what Titus says afterwards because of who he is. And so when Paul says he's a legitimate child, he's, he's absolutely, he's legitimizing Titus. He's saying, no, the, the, he is of the same birth that I am, the same exact birth. And then he confirms it by saying of a common faith. This is faith used not in the sense of like we trust, but in the sense of like a creed, like the, the common faith that we all hold and that we all profess and claim. He's saying, look, Titus and I are cut from the same cloth. Whatever you guys think about his nationality, my nationality, the circumcision thing, he is legitimate. We are, we are the same. You need to listen and pay attention to him because he's the one who's going to be carrying out so much of what Paul writes here. Paul's going to write this letter, and it's just setting the groundwork, starting the trajectory for so much that Titus is going to carry on. And so he wants to set up Titus well for that, right? He doesn't want Titus to be dismissed out of hand. And so he is trying to do everything to, to show the churches of Crete, like, hey, as, as much as you should listen to me, you should listen to Titus just as much. He's bringing the same thing that I taught you. He's bringing the same faith to you. He's doing the same work that I am doing. He is a legitimate son. He's legitimately following in my train, like doing what I was doing, following on my coattails as he should. So he wants to legitimize Titus for the sake of the church going forward. Right? And again, I, I can't say it enough because it's going to come up in the next couple of weeks that this is not, this has nothing to do with ego. This has nothing to do with power or position. This has everything to do with the fact that Paul sees himself and he sees Titus as ministers of God, servants of God who simply bring, they bring the words of the king to the people. That's all they are. They're heralds, right? There's nothing special about them. It's what they bring with them, though, is too important. It's too vital to be dismissed. I love how Paul talks when he's writing to the Corinthians. There's a lot of problems with the Corinthians accepting and trusting what Paul said. They were constantly doubting, constantly believing other people. Titus got sent to Corinth to deal with that very problem. But one of the things that Paul said to the Corinthians in his second letter that we have to them, talking about their ministry, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And jars of clay is this term for common clay pots. It's like the thing you would put the brush you clean the toilet with in when you're done. Like, that's the kind of deal. Like, it's a very common, basic, cheap thing. But he talks about the fact that they're this, he's this common, cheap, ordinary vessel. But what he carries, what he brings in him is so valuable and so precious that you can't miss it. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clays to show that the surpassing power belongs to God 
and not to us. So when you read Paul talking about who he is in Christ, he is not propping himself up. He is saying, hey, this, this is who I'm coming from. This is who I'm coming from. I'm bringing, I'm bringing word. I'm bringing news from the king of the universe. That's why you should pay attention. It is not about me, right? But you cannot afford to dismiss this because I am unimpressive or because you don't think much of me. Forget about that. This is from God himself. And he wants the church to receive Titus in the same way because Titus is going to be doing the same work after him. Forget the man, right? Just like with what I'm preaching to you guys, I don't matter. I don't matter. What matters is if I preach God's word to you. It's the word that matters, not the person up here who is the voice of it. And that is always the case. All right, so Paul uses verse 1 and verse 4 to establish his authority and also to, to let people know and kind of confer that onto Titus as well for the sake of this church going forward. Then we get to kind of the meat of this greeting where he talks about what he does as an apostle. That's the next thing he gets into. Why does, he, why does God send him? Why does he come as this messenger, as this emissary from the king? Why is he sent out? What, what's the point? Why, why are there apostles? What do they do? That's what he gets into. In verse 1, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Yeah, so what are apostles for any? What is their purpose? Why do they exist? And again, it's so important to realize, Paul emphasized his credibility and his authority, not for himself, but for the good of the church. And now we see that played out. Paul says that he's an apostle for some very, very specific reasons. He's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He's an apostle for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He is an apostle for their sake, not for his own. He is an apostle for them. He is a gift from God to the church to establish them, to do certain things that they absolutely need. What Paul preaches, which he summarized as Christ and him crucified, is the lifeblood of the church. The church's very existence depends on hearing and heeding that message and resting in nothing else. And that's the reason he says, first of all, that he is an apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect. First of all, for, for the faith, right? Faith is the means God has ordained by which we become united to Christ, right? It's the instrument of our salvation. We are not united to Christ by what we do. This is the contrast that's always in Scripture. Faith or works, right? Are we justified? Are we made right by what we do? Or are we made right because we are joined to the perfect righteousness of Jesus? It's the latter. But what is the thing that joins us to him? What is the thing that unites us to Christ? This is a huge thing throughout the New Testament, being joined to Christ. What does that? That is faith. That is faith. And faith is not anything you do. Faith can be defined as, as three, having three elements. This was a big, big deal in the midst of the Reformation because the Roman church had really redefined faith and kind of rolled other things into it. 
And so the reformers were very, very careful to define faith well and properly from Scripture. And they basically said it's three elements. And faith consists of three things. First, you have to know something, right? You can't have faith in something you don't know exists. It's pretty basic, right? The second is you have to agree with it, right? You have to affirm that it is true. Right? So know it, agree with it. And the last one is crucial because lots of people can have the first two. Satan and the demons have the first two. We know that from James. The last one is trust. The last one is trust. So you not only have to know the information, you not only have to agree that it's true, but you have to depend on it, rest on it, receive it for yourself. Those three components are what comprise faith. Right? So it is not a work that we do. It is a resting on the work of Jesus, a trusting in the work of Jesus. And Paul says, this is why I exist as an apostle. Right? To see this faith come about for God's elect. His ministry exists to see that faith established in the heart of those whom God has chosen. Jesus in John, he, he has this beautiful picture. He's talking about us as sheep, and he talks about how the sheep hear his voice, and they come to him when they hear his voice. And that's very much the picture here that, that Paul is talking about. As he preaches Christ and him crucified, those who are his hear it, and they recognize it for what it is. They recognize it for the good news that it is, not some nonsense, not some foolishness, not something we should leave behind for something else, but they recognize it as the good news, the best news. They believe that it's true and they throw, they abandon trusting in themselves and what they can do and how well they can perform for instead resting fully on the finished work of Jesus. That's what Paul's ministry was about. It was proclaiming Christ and being crucified. And as that happened, the Holy Spirit was creating faith in the hearts of those whom God chose. All right, Paul says specifically that this is for the sake of the faith of the elect. Election can be a little bit of a tricky thing sometimes, and I've heard um, it even get twisted to where it's used in a way that Scripture doesn't use it, right? Election is this reality that God, before the foundations of the earth, chose to save certain sinful people and bring them to faith and knowledge and trust in Jesus Christ. Had nothing to do with what's in them. It was simply his good pleasure that drove this. We're gonna talk about this more in a minute. But sometimes, I've met with people who've said like, well, how do I know I'm elect? How do I elect? I, I wanna trust Jesus, I wanna, I, I wanna be saved, but how do I know I'm elect? I'm gonna be worried my whole life whether or not I'm elect. That's a total misunderstanding of what this doctrine is. Election is never presented in that way. It's never presented like, oh, you better go figure out if you're elect. Election is something that's hidden in the very person of God. We don't know that, right? But what we do know is what Paul says right here, that God gives the gift of faith to those who he elects. So when somebody says that to me, somebody's worried like, oh, I want to come to Christ, but I don't know if I'm elect. I'm like, that's the wrong question. God never tells you to figure out if you're elect or not. He tells you to trust on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, period. That, that's what you have to worry about. So you wonder if you're elect. Do you trust Christ? Then everything he says about his elect is for you, period. That's what, that is what pertains to us. When scripture brings up election, 
It's not because it's to bring up this mystery that's going to confuse you and undermine your assurance. It's brought up to give you assurance, to give you rest, to reinforce just how good it is what you have. Because it grounds our standing. It grounds our being in Christ, not in us, but in God. And that is a really good thing, right? Your standing in God is grounded in his affection for you, not your affection for him. That's way better because your affections move all over the place, right? If your standing with God depends on how you feel about him on a given day, you are going to be miserable, You're going to be miserable. There is no comfort in that. Election grounds your relationship with God in his performance for you, not your performance for him. Because again, if it's grounded in your performance for him, you will have no confidence ever. You're going to be constantly awash with doubt and angst and anxiety. But no, the grounds of your relationship to God are in his performance for you in Christ. Similarly, it grounds your belonging to God, not in your choosing him, but in his choosing you. The way that comes out in you, when you profess faith, when you pray, when you come to him, that is the fruit of him choosing you. The ultimate foundation, the thing that you fall back on, is not how tightly you cling to God, because if you did, you'd already be fallen, right? No, it's that he holds you. He chose you. And he is not fickle like you are. He is not weak like you are. He doesn't change his mind like you do. So we're going to see it in even more detail here in a second. Election, when it's presented in Scripture, is always presented to comfort believers. To make them realize that, hey, your standing with God is not grounded on all these things in you that move all over the place, up and down all the time. How could we ever have any rest? How could we ever have any assurance if that were the case? We shouldn't. We shouldn't have any. We'd have to stick our heads in the sand and just pretend. That'd be the only way to get it. No, it it assures us because it grounds our standing before God in him, not in us. And that is good news. That is good news. This is at the heart of what makes the gospel good. If the gospel is tied to how tightly you can hold on, how tightly you can, how deeply you can feel about God, how much better you can get day by day, that is a miserable existence. That is not the rest in the easy yoke that Jesus offered, that Jesus calls us to. So election is not meant to be this mysterious puzzle that you have to wonder about your whole life. No, trust Christ. Just trust him. And then know that all these things belong to you. And they will stay yours because they rest on him and not on you. This is really, really good, church, and really important. It's given to you for your confidence, for your assurance. It rests on something much greater than you. But it's important to realize that Paul's ministry as an apostle... It's not just about the entrance into the Christian faith. It's not just about conversion, not just about faith being sparking where there was no faith before. It's about the entire Christian life. What he preaches, what he proclaims, his ministry is what every aspect of the Christian life flows from as we see as he continues on. He says that 
he's an apostle for the sake of also of their knowledge of the truth. So the same thing that brings the, the initial spark of faith, regeneration is the fancy theological word for it, that breaks spiritual life where there was death, also is the same thing that fans it into full flame. The Holy Spirit gives the gift of faith through the word being preached, through Christ and him crucified being preached, and then he continues to sustain and nourish it through the same word, through the same Christ being proclaimed. For the longest time, guys, I thought the gospel was like, it was like the entry ticket into the fair. Right? You buy the ticket and you get in and you're like, all right, I'm in. And now I got to go buy the tickets to go on the rides and to play the games and all this kind of thing. And so I thought Jesus got me in and now I had to do all this other stuff. And that was time to move past that onto the, the bigger and better things of the Christian life. And that, is, that wrecked me for so long because it is just not true. We don't grow beyond Christ. We don't move on to bigger and better things. There is nothing bigger and better. Christ is fully sufficient, and he is one of the one produces everything we need. The same ministry deepens our knowledge of who God is and what he has done. When Paul says the truth here, he really means the truth of who God is and what, how, what he's done for us in Christ. He uses it that way all the time. It's not just truth, truth in a generic sort of way, but who he is and how he is towards us as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. So we are, church, we are never to move beyond the gospel. That is a myth and a devastating one. It's an illusion. There is nothing to move beyond it too. There's nothing bigger. There's nothing better. There's nothing that will produce more in you. you guys to think about a, I thought the picture of a tree was really helpful. What do we see of a tree? We see the trunk and we see the branches and we see the leaves. We see all this stuff up above, right? But what's going on below the surface, right? A tree's roots generally are, they're two to four times wider than the tree above ground is, right? And all the stuff above ground only exists because of what's going on underneath, Everything that tree needs to produce a trunk, to produce branches, to make leaves, all comes from those roots. That's the way the gospel is, right? So we want to see things be different in our lives. We want to be more faithful. We want to you know, honor God more with the choices that we make. We want to understand him more deeply. You don't get that by getting away from roots anymore. You take a tree away from its roots and stick it in the ground. How long is that going to last? It's going to fall down in the slightest little breeze. No, you need more roots, deeper roots, broader roots in the, one, the same thing. That's how Christian life and maturity works. We're never moving beyond the gospel. We are growing deeper into it, always. And you will never get boring. You will never exhaust it. You don't need more to do than this, I promise you. I promise you, it is more than sufficient in fact, the deeper you go, the, the bigger and better and deeper it's just going to seem. The more inexhaustible it's going to get. If it looks like it's not enough, it's because you don't know it well enough yet. So don't look for something else. Go deeper in. Right. The same ministry that sparks faith in those who have it, that turns God's enemy into his friends, is also the same thing that deepens that friendship, that deepens that relationship, that helps us to know I mean, those of you who are married, think about your spouse, right? Think about how you knew them when you were dating versus how you know them now. 
right? So much more, right? It's just a totally different level of knowledge, right? We don't find that with God. We don't come to know him more deeply by moving off of the gospel and how he's revealed himself in Christ. Scripture tells us that Christ and what he did, he's the very image of God. This is the best, this is the, the clearest, the best we will ever see him is in Jesus. So Paul wants us to know, don't look to other things. There's these teachers who are coming into the church and saying, oh, you need to add this in. You need to go over here. This isn't enough. That's happening in the church in Crete. And so Paul is driving home to them, don't do it. Don't do it. It is a lie. You do not need more. You do not need other. This is the only thing that can produce the depth that you want. It's the only thing that can produce true, truly changed life, true godliness. As he goes on, he says that this, this knowledge of the truth is not just generic truth, like I mentioned, but it's knowledge that accords with godliness, that is in line with godliness. Scripture talks at times about a type of knowledge that just puffs up, right? It's this head knowledge where you know more, so you feel arrogant. It doesn't produce godliness, it produces arrogance. And what Paul is saying is that this, this knowledge of this truth, this produces something very, very different than that. This is not that kind of knowledge. This faith that we talked about, this truth that we've talked about, it produces a certain kind of life. It naturally produces, just like an apple tree, because it's an apple tree, produces apples. You don't get apples by sticking apples on a tree. It doesn't work, right? If the roots of an apple tree are apple tree roots, and the trunk of an apple tree is, apple, is an apple tree trunk, eventually apples are what come out. Right? So you need this faith, you need this truth that comes from the gospel to produce any actual, true, real obedience. And this really draws out a theme that you can see really throughout Scripture. This is a sermon on its own, one of the, well, the many that I could have broken this into, like I said. Right? But one of the things that you see throughout Scripture, if you look, is that we become what we worship. We become what we worship. And perhaps the best, most clear place we see this is in Psalm 115. It says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. There's this thing about what worship actually is, is that it is something that changes you and shapes you and molds you into the likeness and image of the thing that you worship. Right? And so this plays out in Crete. Right? We saw, we're going to get into it a little bit more, some more details about what was going on there. But the Cretans are bad people. They have, they have poems. They talk about themselves. They're immoral. They live pragmatic lives. They manipulate. They lie. They have a horrible reputation for the type of lives that they live. And this actually isn't very surprising because their worship is, they have a very, very deep worship for the Greek gods. Uh, they thought most of the Greek gods were born on their island, and they had a particular affinity for Zeus, who is powerful, but he's not a good guy. He lies all the time. He manipulates people. He, he's, he's a horrible person in terms of actual morality and character. He's just powerful, so he can get away with more. Right? And that's who the people on this island worship. 
right? And so it's no surprise when Paul talks about who they are, what they are like outside of Christ, that we see the kind of things that he says, right? They are being conformed into the image of their gods, just the way Scripture talks about happens. And so in 2 Corinthians 3.8, Paul tells the Corinthian church this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here we have the, here's the turn, right? So how, how do you actually get to where your life looks good? We, we want to live better lives. How does that actually happen? Well, you don't get it by running to other things other than God himself revealed in Christ, right? That's where you get it. You run deeper into that. You look at him. You see him. You come to know him. And that is what changes you. You can't make it some other way. This is the way it happens. True worship of the true God is what produces a real true life of actual obedience. You can fake all kinds of stuff on the outside. There's all sorts of reasons to do external things that look great. Right? But for true, real obedience, the kind of stuff that we are actually after as Christians, you can't get it at it any of those ways. You can't get at it the ways that the false teachers who are bothering the Cretans are trying to get them to pursue it. So Paul is saying, hey, look, this message of Christ and him crucified, this revelation of who God is and how he relates to you, it is the thing that the Spirit uses to spark faith in you, to regenerate you, to give you spiritual life. It is the thing that grows you, matures you, deepens your understanding of who God is. And it is also the thing that brings forth the fruit of an actual changed life, of true obedience, true love of God and neighbor. And nothing else, nothing else does. This is the only thing. So church, these are not like three different ministries. These are not three different things Paul was doing. It's a description of of this vast breadth of all that the gospel does. The gospel does everything. What Christ has done for us does everything. There's nothing to move beyond. It is all found there. This one ministry of the gospel entrusted to Paul is the source of all spiritual good for us. And that ministry, in turn, is passed on to the church. This ministry is the work of Christ proclaimed. That is what sparks faith. It is what deepens our grasp of who God is. And it's what ultimately produces good in us. But that's not all, right? All of those things are true and they are good, but there is even more, right? Because all those things set up a trajectory there is a, there's a destination that all those things lead to that we see as Paul goes on. He says that he does all these things for the sake of the church in the hope of eternal life. In the hope of eternal life. It's important that we understand hope the right way. When Scripture uses hope, it doesn't use it the way we usually do it. We use hope like a wish. Right? I hope the Lions win a Super Bowl someday. That's very wishful thinking, if you know anything about football, right? Uh, that's a wish. That's how we use hope, right? We, use, we throw hope around like that all the time. I hope this, I hope that, I hope that. That is not what the Bible is saying when it says hope. 
What Scripture is saying when it says hope is it is talking about a certain expectation of something that will happen, it just hasn't yet. Right? This, it is an expectation. There, there's no part of, of biblical hope that has doubt in it. Right? It is just something that has not arrived yet. It is certain. It is set. It will happen. So it's this expectation, this faithful, trusting expectation of what will come that hasn't been yet. So when Paul talks about in hope of eternal life, it's not this like, oh man, I really hope there's something you know, down the road. That'd be really great. You know, kind of some of the stuff we saw in Ecclesiastes with Solomon at times. He's like, I don't know. Who knows? That's not what Paul's talking about. When he says in hope of eternal life, he's saying all, the, the gospel does all these things in you. This gospel that I'm preaching does all these things in you to create this certain expectation this knowledge, this confidence of a true, full, abundant, eternal life that we taste a foretaste of, but we have not tasted in full. That is to come. The things that we've talked about so far, the faith growing in the truth, the godliness that it produces, they are just the forerunners. They are the prelude to the culmination that's coming, to what we look forward to, what we actually cling to this deliverance and freedom that awaits us when we know true life. And, and this is very much contrasted to the way that Scripture talks about sin. Sin produces death. And the only way it understands us outside of Christ is dead. We are dead people. There's nothing alive in us. There's nothing we can do to make life happen in us. Our life is defined by death outside of Christ. But in Christ, everything shifts and changes. We are brought into life. As surely as he is resurrected from the grave, we are joined to his resurrected life. His resurrection is, is the guarantee that this actually does await us. This is the promise. This is the certainty that we cling to, that this eternal life does, in fact, belong to us. And this ministry, this ministry that Paul's talking about, that we've been talking about this whole time, it is the only thing that offers this hope. This hope is found nowhere else. To all these other people who are coming into the church and preaching other things, they do not offer this hope of eternal life. This is only found in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his atonement for sin and his resurrection that proves it's the thing that can do it. There is no other religion that has a resurrected Savior who can say, I conquered death. We have that. Period. We're the only ones who do. This is what makes Christianity unique. The gospel is the only thing that can produce life from death. So you cannot leave this. You cannot leave this. It would be foolish. But can we really be so certain? Can we really be that certain? Paul wants us to be. And so he's going to tell us that we can. And he's going to tell us why. He's going to tell us why we can trust that that life, even though we haven't tasted it yet, is in fact ours in Christ. And he's going to ground it in who God is and what God has promised. We can be so certain, we can be so confident because of these two things. And he starts off by saying, 
that this finds its source, this life, we can be certain of it, because it is promised by the God who never lies. The God who never lies. And again, this is put a particular way, right? It's not just theological. It's also a little, it's here for the Cretans and their God. Their gods lie all the time. It's like their thing. They just lie to each other. They lie to people. They're marked by deception. And so Cretan culture is marked by lying, deception, manipulation all the time. And so Paul's drawing out a theological truth, but he also wants them to see this stark contrast, right? The gods that they used to worship, if he were to hold out certainty, that there would be some certainty from Zeus, from certainty from the Greek, they would laugh in his face. It's like there's nothing certain about the gods. They're just as finicky as people are, if not more. They're not trustworthy. They change all the time. They're moody. They're petty. So there's no certainty in anything from them. God's driving home the fact that that is not our God. Our God could not be any more different. And Scripture is so clear on this. This is one of the fundamental things we know that it reveals about God that that is the source of our hope, that God does not lie, that he does not change at all. He's immutable. It's the big fancy word for you, that he does not change. He is who he is, and he always will be. Listen to a few passages. Numbers 23.9. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Hebrews 6.17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One last one, Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Our God, this is so fundamental, so essential to who he is, that if he were to lie, he's a different God. He ceases to be who he is, and we should just quit this whole thing. If God can lie, we should quit. We should start. We should just leave right now. Stop all this and go do something different. This is so essential to who God is and how he works towards us. He does not lie because he cannot lie. He is truth. He does not change. This is so hard for us to to grasp this as fully as we should because we are not like this at all, right? Even when we have good intentions, we somehow sometimes fail to keep what we promise. God is never like that. He always does exactly what he says. He never lacks the power to. He never lacks the wisdom to do so. He, every single time, accomplishes exactly what he intends. And if he does not, he ceases to be who he is. So this God who does not lie, it turns out he promised the stuff that we've talked about. He promised this eternal life a long time ago says that he promised this before the ages began. Right? This is important. This kind of ties hand in hand, right? So not only does God not lie, he doesn't change. His purposes in redemption have been set from before you ever existed. 
God planned to redeem a people for himself, to give them this faith and trust in Christ, to allow them to know him and understand him and see him and to bring forth good out of them and to bring them into eternal life, that was decided. That was ordained before history even began. Scripture says, redemption was never a plan B. When Adam and Eve fell, God wasn't scrambling, like, oh, dang it. That, well, what do we do now? Well, I'm sure we can come up, let's come up with something. Here we go. Um, Jesus, uh, yeah, we got it. There was none of that. There was none of that. This is so hard for us to, to wrap our heads around. God doesn't even operate within time. God, time is something he created us for to, to, to live within. This is crazy, right? So before we exist or anything, there was this promise. God never reacts. He never adjusts. He's never caught off guard. Redemption was not a scramble drill by God to make the best of a bad situation, to salvage something that didn't go according to plan. So the question is like, who did he promise to if we weren't there? God made a promise. Who did he promise to? It was a promise within himself. It was a promise within the Trinity. As Christians, we believe in one God in three persons. We're not, we're not monotheists in the way that Muslims are or Jews are. We believe in one God in three persons. This is very, very unique in Christianity. And this promise is something that occurred within the Trinity. The Trinity, the three persons of the, tree, of the God had agreed in eternity past that the Father would elect a people to be redeemed, the Son would accomplish that redemption, and that the Holy Spirit would then apply that redemption to his people by bringing them to faith. I don't have time to go all into that, but if you come to Covenant Theology class, we're going to talk about that a lot, so sign up. A little plug, right? I want to do more. It's so rich when you see this from Scripture. But I want you guys to see how much this, this confidence this is supposed to give us. We have a God who never lies, who cannot lie, because it contradicts the very nature of who he is, who determined before the foundations of the world that he was going to redeem a, a people for himself. Right? Paul is grounding this hope, this hope of eternal life, this certainty, as deeply, this is as deep as roots can go. He's grounding it in the very person of God himself. As surely as God is God, you can be certain of the life to come in Christ. We can trust in what has been delivered to us because it's the promise of an almighty God who cannot lie and does not change. So the last thing that Paul says is, is how this comes to us, right? All this, this beautiful truth that we've seen he goes on in verse 3 to say, and at the proper time, so he's talking about ages before, what God's doing within the Trinity, this purpose to redeem a people for himself and to bring them into life. Now he says, at the proper time, it's been manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So this thing that happened in eternity past in the counsel of God has now been brought to us, been made manifest. That means to be revealed. Like we get to look into it now. How? How? Well, Jesus came, right? And now Jesus is preached, right? It's through the preaching of this word. God revealed it to us, and now we receive it. Now it's revealed to us. Now we trust it. We receive it through the preaching 
of God's word. This is what Paul was commanded to. So all these things that he's doing, this is the vehicle they come through. The preaching of Christ and him crucified. I spoiled that lead a long, you know, a long time ago, right? But that, that's the heart of this. It's the preaching of Christ and him crucified. It's what he has done for sinners that makes all of these things a reality. Romans 10 makes this very clear that this is the means God uses to communicate this to his people and to do this in his people. Romans 10, 12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God in his wisdom has designed that this is the thing that makes all of these things a reality for us as, as people. It is the preaching of Christ. It is the preaching of Christ. All that work that he accomplished now comes to us. It's made manifest. It's revealed to us in saving, life-giving power through simple words that the Holy Spirit takes and then uses them deftly to breathe life into dead souls, to nurture and grow and mature little little baby spiritual infants, to produce good in somebody who could before only focus on themselves, but to create genuine love for God and their neighbor. All of this happens through, through words that the Holy Spirit takes and works in you through. It's such a humble means, jar of clay, and yet God does so much through it. It's because it's such a humble means, I think, that it's so easy to throw it away. Right? So many of the epistles that Paul writes to churches and to Titus and Timothy, the church is on the verge of getting rid of this, or at least bringing a bunch of extra stuff in to go with it, right? Because it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just words. It's just preaching this gospel. So there's all kinds of other shiny things that you can chase after. So, oh, this looks like this would work. Let's throw some of this in there. This would make things a little bit better. But they don't. This is the only thing. This is the means that God has ordained by which he gives life to dead sinners. He closes with a common greeting for Paul, grace and peace to you. It's easy for us to just glance over this, but this greeting is, it really kind of drives home what all that Paul has said. It kind of puts a capper on it. The normal kind of farewell greeting for Greeks was something similar to grace. It was a word um, that was similar, but not the same. And Paul changes it. He shifts from the normal greeting that the Greeks would do, and he changes it to charis, which is the grace that we talk about when we talk about the grace of God that's been given to us. He shifts it from this kind of generic well-wishing to the very grace of God. And to that he adds peace, right? Peace is the traditional Hebrew greeting, shalom, salam in, in Arabic. It's in the Middle East, this is how you greet somebody, peace. And he adds, the, he puts these two together, grace and peace. 
And peace follows grace for a reason, right? Because it's not just Paul giving them his grace, his peace. It's grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It just seems like a little throwaway line, but what Paul is saying in that, like, you have received grace, not from me. Who cares if you get grace from me? You've received grace from God himself. And because you've received grace from God himself, there is now peace between you and God. You have been reconciled to him. You are his enemy. You are are in rebellion to him. You are under his wrath. You are a treasonous rebel. And now you have been reconciled. Not just had your crimes wiped clean, but you've been made a son or daughter of God himself. God, our God the Father. That's unbelievable. This one line is just absolutely unbelievable. These little things Paul does with it to communicate the truth of the gospel. We have received grace. We have received grace from God that has changed our relationship with him and made him our father. It's reconciled us to that degree where we have gone from being treasonous rebels to being sons and co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Amen? That's a lot packed into a hello at the beginning of a letter. The beautiful thing is that that greeting that Paul gives that's so rich at the end, grace and peace, is also the same thing we receive when we take communion every week. Right? The means of grace that God's given us, it is the preaching of the word, but God in his kindness, knowing that we struggle to believe this, knowing that we are prone to look to other things, knowing that we are prone to doubt, gives us his gospel not just through words, but also through sacrament, through this table, through not just through our ears, but through our taste and our touch and our sight. All of our senses get ministered to the fact that Christ, Christ for us, Christ for us, that's what this meal is about. So if you are trusting him this morning, this meal is for you to nourish and sustain your faith. If you're not, uh, please don't partake of it. That's not because we want to withhold good from you, but, but simply because this meal is not good for you apart from faith. It does nothing for you. If anything, it does harm. We don't want to confirm and give you a kind of confidence that you should not have apart from Christ. And I'd love to talk to you more about that if, if you desire. But this is a meal for the family of God, those who are trusting, resting in Christ to those who've had this ministry take effect in them, right? That, that faith has been sparked by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word. And so we're going to partake this morning, church. Uh, there's uh, communion in both corners in the very back. Two cups are stacked together. The purple ones have juice. The clear ones have wine. Bread's on the bottom, so you just need to get one. And then we'll go receive the elements as we sing, and then I'll come back up and, and lead you guys through how this is God's, essentially God's grace and peace to us. So church, let's stand and worship and receive the elements.